Well, good morning, church. Pastor Dwayne, next is Pastor here. Glad you're here. Glad you're home with us on the live stream. Um, and we're glad to be part of the church today. And uh, I just want to remind you that it's a communion day. So if you haven't taken the opportunity, make sure you have some bread, some juice or wine or whatever it is you're going to use for that with you as we begin the service. If you need something, raise your hand and one of our greeters will get it to you here in this room. Um, as we begin today, I just want to remind you, we are in the middle of Psalm 139. No surprise. So if you have a Bible, mark it there. And as you do that, I'm just going to take you back into our history. Way back, like 18 months ago, around April 5th, 2020. Do you remember that? Just after we'd been locked down? There was a little company, perhaps you've heard of them. Their, their name is Zoom. Ever heard of that company? Just a little more popular today than they were back in like February 2020. Well, they made this decision to have all their video calls launch with the secure waiting room as the default option to make sure it was on. And this allowed the, the users to make sure that they knew the participants, that only participants in the call, only people that had been given that right were allowed to join these calls. Prior to that date, prior to April, the virtual door was wide open to strangers, and they took advantage of this by doing something that we now call Zoom bombing. I don't know if you've heard about that. I learned about that this week, but we get it. There were these strangers who were getting into these calls because there was no gates, and they were misbehaving. And by misbehaving, you can insert anything there. Just don't search for it. Um, you, 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 know, you don't want to do that. But they were disrupting meetings. And in some cases, they were spying on rival businesses. And if you think about it, this is all kind of creepy. And Zoom's reaction to Zoom bombing speaks to the basis of our freedom. Freedom is a social thing. We give freedom to people that we know, and we get freedom from people who know us. So as a result, we're identity screening all the time. We, give, we uh, do this on our phones. We screen phone calls. We screen texts. We screen our emails. We screen the app invites. I, I have friend invites on Facebook that I'm not responding to because I'm just not sure who the people are. You know? and, and you've done this before we even had computers. You did this at the door. You screened the visitors to your house. You didn't let strangers in. No one was having access to your house. No one was having freedom to get into your place without a little interview. So we're screeners. But the best screeners in the business are the airports. Right? The last time that I flew, I had to show my passport. I had to have a body scan. I had to take a mugshot. I had to list my destination, I had to say why I was traveling, I had to let them search my bags and my shoes. Right? It's, it's crazy. They even took away a hamburger I was eating. Because they thought I was importing illegal meat. Screening is serious business because it's tied to our freedoms. And it's likely true with you. The more people feel like they know you, the more freedom you have with them, Right? So it begs the question, how much freedom can a fully known person get? We've been talking about that in, one, in Psalm 139. How much freedom does a person whose thoughts and their emotions and their ways, their words, their biology, their history, and even their eternal destiny, how much freedom do they get with God? Well, Psalm 139 shows us the answer. With God, you can be, you are fully free because he fully knows you. And after this marvelous meditation on being fully known, David audaciously approaches God with freedom to adore all that God thinks about. He openly pursues God's will without apology, and he starts living his life, or he is living his life with a bold-faced confidence that is both shocking, but also 
admirable. You know you admire people that look confident, right? You admire those people that can stand with their chest out and head held high. We can admire David because he's talking to God in this intimate way, but he's doing it with this great confidence because he's free. Spiritual freedom comes from knowing that God understands you and he knows your heart. And if you let God search you and lead you, you'll be free. So we're going to look at how David expresses his full freedom. So if you've got your word, turn in your Bibles to Psalm 139, and let's read this together, starting at verse 17. And I've got to warn you, the tone of this sermon is a little different than last week's. It starts here, How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, and I'm still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God! O men of blood, depart from me! They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. David is a fully free worshiper, and we can learn three lessons from him, so I just want to know, are you ready to start learning from David again? Are you ready? Sure. We'll go with that. Maybe you came to church, going to learn a few things. Awesome. Well, here's lesson one. I'm a fully free worshiper when I think deeply about God. We're just following David's examples here. So let's start here. It, 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 was, um, it might take a little work for some of us to settle our minds onto spiritual matters, to thinking deeply about them. If you have a busy mind, I have a busy mind. I can admit that. You you live every moment of your lives with thoughts buzzing around. Your head is like a beehive on a sunny summer afternoon, just full of activity, thoughts going everywhere. But no matter how many thoughts you have, your thought life is infinitely outclassed by God's. See what David says in verse 17? He says, how precious to me are thoughts, O God, how vast is the sum of them. There are so many of God's thoughts that if you used a single grain of sand to signify each one of them, you would run out of sand before you ran out of God's ideas. And if you're thinking, you know, how much sand is there? Well, often people talk about the stars in the sky. Someone did the math and decided, decided that the grains of sand on the earth vastly outnumber the stars in the sky. I don't know who contemplates those things. I wanted to show you a slide, but there's not enough room for all the zeros. So David is imagining he had the ability to count all these things as a sign of respect for God's mind. But he he also admits that it's impossible. And these two verses, 17 and 18, they kind of stump commentators because they can't see how David goes exactly from thinking about God to falling asleep. He says, I awake and I'm still with you. But they, they think it's this kind of idea that David is marveling over God's mind. As he meditates on that, perhaps he he falls asleep and he awakes to find out that he's still with God. There's still an intimacy. It's like David has been counting sheep, but instead of sheep, it's God's ideas, God's things that he's made, God's ways that he loves him. And the point here is this. David uses his freedom as a worshiper to put his mind to work at comprehending what God knows. The point of having a mind is that you can connect with your God, that you can relate to your creator. So it's good for you to spend some of your time thinking deeply about him. Let his word and let his creation affect you. 
Let God's mind interact with your freedom. Don't throw up subconscious guards by only considering the doubts and the counterarguments, the logical limits of what critics say. These are all barriers to valuing what God thinks about, what God wants you to learn. Instead, take the posture of enthusiastic, lifelong learners. Since God has many more thoughts than you can ever count, then there will always be more for you to learn. You're always going to be able to enjoy the study of truth and the universe and God. And education and Christianity are not separate separate pursuits. It's sad that we have separated these ideas into like public school and private school and homeschool. If you're a teacher, if you're a Christian teacher, you should be providing opportunities to study many things. I hope our sermons enlighten you on many things. And if you're a student, you have to choose. You have to choose to pursue your education as a worshiper or if you won't. If you're contemplating perhaps the value of your university degree, you have to think deeply about that, whether you've got that ahead of you or whether that was behind you. You have to think deeply about those things. One person who has done that, a scholar, has has kind of come up with four ideas that should be in your education. I'm pulling this from a quote. I don't think it's going to be on the screen, and I, I don't want it to be on the screen. But here are the ideas from it. It's a long one. But he writes that the, that the pursuit of the liberal arts degree, for instance, ought to be an act of piety for the Christian, a celebration of God's overflowing bounty in creation. So that's one principle. Another one is that it should include representatives of the entire range of disciplines, both professional and non-professional. It shouldn't be determined by the practical needs of, uh, of, of preparing to earn a living only. It shouldn't just be about practical stuff. It also must reflect the theological commitments of the Christian faith. So four ideas. Piety, it should have a breadth of things, professional, non-professional. It shouldn't just be practical training. It must include your Christian faith, the commitments and the theology of those things. That's a robust education. And that's what we can do with our freedom. We can study it all. So if you're in a secular institution, you can still be learning things about Christ. And if you're learning things about Christ exclusively, you can still apply your mind to the things that the world knows about. Whatever it is, if you have the freedom to think and learn, use it. Freedom is a gift. This thing is driving me crazy. It's not enough to only know what's in the Bible. I know that might sound weird for me to say as, the, as, a, as a person of the church, but it's not enough to only know what's in the Bible. Jesus knew the Torah, but he also studied carpentry. He learned how to make chairs. He, he learned how to make tables. He understood how to, how to you know, use a lathe and, and all those things that carpenters do. The disciples who walked with Jesus, they understood fishing. They understood business. They understood medicine and tax collections and basic economy and hospitality. They learned all these things as practical matters that came as a result of choosing to follow Christ. So if you're a student, if you work a trade, if you, if you haven't had any real formal academic training, it doesn't matter. Scripture calls you to a higher education. Consider what it says in Philippians 4, verses 8 to 9, as a call to that higher education. It says this, and you've heard these words before, but think about them not just as a call to character, but as a call to your education, a call to keep learning. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, If there is anything excellent, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And what you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, Paul says, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. It's a call to education. 
It's a call to use your mind to think deeply about the things that God would have you think about. So think about these things and learn your skills and your character from reliable people that God has placed in your life. But you may be wondering, depending on what you've done with your life or what's happened to you, what if you've not done enough mental reps to make your mind strong? Or what if you've had brain damage? What what if something's happened in your life to slow your thinking down so it's like churning through wet cement? Some people don't enjoy the process of thinking. For some people, it's hard to come up with ideas. Sometimes it's hard to make things turn over. Or what if you're someone that just because of the way life has gone for you, cognitive skills haven't really developed? Does that jeopardize your relationship with God who has so many thoughts? Is that going to leave you out? No. A person is so much more than their ideas. So you know that even if you are really young or when you get to be really old and your mind is not going to likely be there the way it is for you right now, you don't have to worry. God knows you fully and he can commune with you spirit to spirit. Romans chapter 8 verse 27 says it. He who searches hearts knows what's in the mind of the spirit because the spirit intercedes for the saints. So you don't have to worry about being left out if your mind's not there the way you want it to be. You are known because you are spirit, and your spirit is alive. And if you're known, you are still free to enjoy God. So that's lesson one. Is that okay? It's okay? You're, you're with me? We got two more. Are you ready for lesson two? The answer is going to be yes. Are you ready for le- yes, lesson two? Yes. yes. Awesome. Good. I'm so happy you asked me to teach you another lesson. I am fully free. I'm a fully free worshiper when I hate what he hates, And he loves what he loves. i got to tell you, this is the most difficult point to get through today. But we're going to go for it. If you're reading this scripture, if you're looking at it, you should have heard me kind of make a tone change. There's a little tone change in this passage. Well, there's actually a lot. This is like receiving a text in all caps. And I learned actually that it's offensive to receive a text in all caps, but it's even more offensive if you put a period at the end of that text. I didn't know that, and I sent a person a happy text once, and I put a period at the end, and they called me back. It's like, are you mad at me? I'm like, what? I just was like writing the way I was taught in English class. I finished a sentence, and I put a period there. But if you're texting someone, and you've typed, you've typed in a bunch of capitals, and then you put a period at the end, you've, you've expressed a lot of anger. So if this was a text, verses 19 to 22 would all be in capitals, and there would be a big period at the end. So there's a tone change. David turns a corner with verse 19 when he implores God to slay the wicked. Literally means kill them. And he starts to confess his heart hatred for the bloodthirsty men who have wicked and malicious intentions. He hates when they use God's name in vain. He hates the ones who hate God and hates those that rise up against him. He concludes this rant by saying he hates them completely. He gets 100% on whatever test it is that measures hatred. He counts them his enemies. So, you know, last week we were talking about things like little babies and being known by God and loved and all that stuff. And, and you're like, where does this come from? David, do you need to see a counselor? Do you need to, like, book some time with Roger and Steph and their team? Like, we got a couch for you over in the office. Maybe you can just kind of lie down and talk about this stuff. There's a little rage going on. you got to go work on your issues, David. On first pass to us, it might seem that David's anger looks a little self-righteous even. It might be like, who are you to say these kind of things? That's if you're not paying a close attention to the text. But in context, we see that David's fully free to speak from his heart. 
And you are too. You have that same freedom. When you're free with God, there is no reason to hide your passion for righteousness. There's no reason to disguise your dismay over evil things. You are free to express your full range of emotions before the Lord. You don't have to hide stuff from him. You don't have to pretend you're feeling one way when you really don't. You can pray and talk to God freely because God understands your heart. Now, all this said, this kind of prayer is NSFM. It's not safe for mealtime. So you don't bring the hate when you say grace before dinner. You're not like, bless us, O Lord, and these thy gifts, which they're about to receive, thy bounty. And please, slay the wicked, because we hate them completely. Amen. Could someone pass the please? Please. Like we don't do that. That's not the way we pray. That's not what we're encouraged to do here. Our freedom does not grant us the right to act out our hateful thoughts. It does give us the ability to explore our hatred with more objectivity so that we don't become slaves to the things that make us angry and hate others. That's why God could say to Cain, Cain and Abel, he could say to Cain right before he goes out and kills his brother, he slows him down and goes, hey, Cain, why are you angry? He was trying to give Cain some freedom. He was trying to get Cain from, keep Cain from being enslaved to this hatred that had grown in his heart because of something he was jealous or envious about, something wrong that he had in his heart towards his brother. And if you hate anything or anyone, you need to constantly check your heart against God's character. And when you do, you're going to see that hatred is valid only when it's consistent with God's word. It's, and any hate that can't be trumped by God's love is wrong. Hate is never the high moral road. It's never the high ground. It's, it's always a dangerous road. It's, it's walking the razor's edge. People who would seek revenge out of hatred, they're warned to dig two graves. And Jesus, on the night he was betrayed and his disciples came up against his enemies, he told them, hey, if anybody takes up a sword, you're going to die by that sword. Hatred's a dangerous road. And we need to understand that David, by saying these things, he is not giving into his hate. He's free to speak like this because he knows also that he loves what God loves. And we're going to get to that in just a minute. But David has a clear heart, clear conscience here. He knows there are things that God is against. Do you know that? Some of you would have a hard time believing that God hates anything. If you're like me, it's like, does God hate stuff? Does God really hate things? I can prove that to you. I just need one verse to do it. In Proverbs 6, 16, you might want to write this down. It's not too far away from there. I don't want to flip to it, but stay in this passage. But remember Proverbs 6, 16. It starts off this. There are six things the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. And then it lists these things. And these aren't the only things that hate God, God hates, but listen to the kind of things that God hates. Haughty, haughty eyes. That's people who are arrogant before him. Lying tongues. Hands that shed innocent blood. Hearts that devise wicked plans. Feet that make haste to run to evil. False witnesses who breathe out lies. People who sow discord among families, among brothers. People who mess up relationships intentionally around people who get along. That's like me coming in there and whispering in your ears and saying, that person beside you hates you. They just scratched your car in the parking lot. They stole your money. Just being mischievous, just stirring people up. That's wickedness. So God hates some stuff. It's true. It makes us uncomfortable. 
We don't like talking about it. We don't, we don't, it's not polite to say those things often, but God hates some stuff. And David, who was the king of Israel, he was given an army to lead against ruthless nations as an act of God's condemnation on specifically their outrageous idolatry. In extremes, those nations around David, their idolatry involved sacrificing children, and it showed no regard for the sanctity of human life. And God, in his holiness, hated those things. And so David, who stood with God, hated them as well. But he knew that you can't use holiness as a warrant for personal vengeance. You can't use holiness as a warrant for vigilante-style enforcement of your self-righteous rules. We see people making this mistake all the time. We see it in terror groups. It's, it's hatred that brought the Twin Towers down. We see it in, in hate groups that violently express their anger. And this has got to be at the root of what caused some of those people, at least, to, to rush the White House. We see hate affecting things in the news, in the headlines. We, we read and, and listen and, and watch and, and cover our mouths at the things that we see. We see the abuse of kids. We see the abuse of women. We see the abuse of minorities. We see rebellion against authority, and it's all sourced in hate. And as the church, we need to stand apart from these wicked things so that we can freely stand with and stand up for what is holy and what is good and what is just and what is fair. Your hatred should identify you as being with God, but it should never alienate you or others from the possibility and the experience of his love. Do you follow me with that? Do you understand that? So here's a question for you. Because we are all capable of hate, right? God is capable of hate, so we must admit that we're capable of hate. Put up your hand if you are incapable of hate. No one in this room has their hand up. If you have your hand up at home, you are lying to the people in your house. We're all capable of hate. But when you express your hate, are you closely identifying with God? Or are you just angry? Don't be a hater. There's nothing in this text to suggest that that is what God wants for us. And if we look into the New Testament, what always helps us understand the Old Testament, we understand that we are in a context of love. We've always been in a context of love. It's not hate. John the disciple who Jesus loved, wrote to the church and defined God, saying, God is love. 1 John 4, he explains that. So, a God who is love, what does God love? Do you know what he loves? John 3.16 tells us that God loves the world, and by the world he means God loves sinful people. Because that's who's in the world. That's who he sent Christ for. He sent Christ to die for sinful people. God loves them. And if we reread that proverb, Proverbs 6, 16, with all those things that God hates, and we read it in, God, in light of God's love, we can use our imaginations to see what God stands for. So if you can remember it, I'm just going to reverse it and read it this way. God loves a humble spirit. God loves a trustworthy tongue. God loves hands that serve and heal. He loves a heart that comes up with plans to do good. He loves the urgency to share the gospel and to turn from sin. He loves a reliable witness who will tell the truth because God loves justice. 
And he loves it when you work to bring peace anywhere, but he loves it when you work to keep families together, when you work to keep brothers together, when you work to help people stay together. If you're that person who's walking the room saying things like, that person over there, they love you. That person over there, they're trustworthy. You should give that person another chance. God loves that. God loves that. Those are the things that he loves. And you know what? I know one thing about you. You love those things too. And when you've got a balance on both aspects of God, his hate and his love, you're free. You're free. You get both. You're not stuck with just the hate. So that was lesson two. What was lesson one? Check your notes. Right? What was lesson two? I hate what God hates, and I love what he loves. You ready for lesson three? The Hulk Hogan. Got to do something. We're talking about hate for a long time this morning. I'm a fully free worshiper when I open my heart to him completely. So David has just spoken publicly against wickedness, and that's hard to do. We don't do that. You know, we keep our thoughts against things kind of low-key. But David has spoken up about it right here in the Scriptures, and he realized he could be criticized. Someone might think, hey, David, you're self-righteous. And you know what? Even David doesn't know exactly where this comes from. We don't really understand all the motivations in our heart. We have moral blind spots to deal with. These blind spots have to be addressed before we can act in full freedom. You can't just do things when you have blind spots. Like, think about this. During the pandemic, people tried to give themselves hairstyles, not just haircuts. I can give myself a haircut. It's, it's not really that hard, but even I need assistance. But if you're going to try to style your hair, if you're going to try to make things look good back here somewhere, you know, if you're going to try to line up your own beard if you have a beard, you're going to need assistance from a capable person. Remember capable, right? Uh, because if you don't grab a capable person, if you grab your kids, if you grab someone that has unsteady hands, if you've got someone who's never used scissors and, a, and, and a, you know, not a knife, but, um, you know, if you use those tools, if you give those to an uncapable person, you're going to end up with a problem. You're going to have a corona cut. And if you've hashtagged anything, hashtag corona cuts, and you see how these things have gone wrong, Now listen, if you can't see the back of your own head, how can you tell what's in your heart? David wants the freedom to have a clear conscience, but he must trust God to to make the final decision and give him the okay about what he's saying. So he tells God, he started at the top, hey God, you have searched me, but do it again. Search me again. Know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, he says. And then he says this audacious part. He says, lead me in the way everlasting. And that's where it ends. He, he's, he's saying to God, he's not just saying, please, can I, can I have some, you know, heaven with you? He's saying, lead me in this thing. I want it. Give me freedom to walk with you. That's bold. That's freedom before the Lord. Your sense of full freedom and confidence comes when you invite Christ in and he gives you the okay. You let yourself be fully known to become fully free. And you should want him to look through the home of your heart so he can get to know you better. Have you ever had a home inspection? Have you ever bought a house and had someone come to the house? Well, the good inspector, he's going to get up on the roof 
He brings that little ladder that fits in the back of his trunk, but it extends all the way to your roof. And he gets up there and he looks at the shingles. He climbs up in the attic and checks the insulation. He digs around in the basement looking for cracks. He checks the foundation walls for their integrity. He checks for plumbing. He tests for water. He tests the water. And the more time he spends with the house, the better he gets to know it. And he's looking for things that the homeowner would miss. He wants to give it the okay. God is our heart inspector because he wants to make himself a home there. So what is God looking for when he checks you out? Is he looking for a list of your sins? Does he want to compare you to a set of righteous rules? No, that's not his point. Praise God that opening your hearts to him is not an exercise in in feeling guilty. That's not what church is supposed to be about. If you are in Christ, your sins, weighty as they may be, weighty as they were when you came in, you need to remember, and we're going to celebrate it today, that they are blotted out in the name of Jesus Christ, that they've been forgiven on the cross, that they've been removed as far as the east is from the west. So God's not looking to just show you your sin. His inspection is meant to reveal your devotion How freely do you follow Jesus Christ? The test for this is always a personal event. God doesn't do it remotely. He's not going to zoom this in. He puts his spirit in you so that you can be free to live for him. What do the scriptures tell us about this? They say these two things. One, it is God who works in you, in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. That's in Philippians. And then over in Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, it says, and the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, and where is the spirit? The spirit is in you. There is freedom. So God works inside of us, in our hearts, to help us act freely so that we can do what pleases him, so that we can, so that we can do what comes naturally to him, which is to love. And if we open our hearts completely, we'll know that we are exposed, which makes us uncomfortable, which makes us vulnerable, but because God knows us so well, we're okay. We're like Adam and Eve before they had sin to hide. We're like David in this psalm, as he is confident here before the Lord, saying, lead me, lead me in the everlasting way. I'm ready. You can take me. They walked in peace with God. And they lived without fear of him. And they lived without fear of each other. Full freedom with God is at the root of deeper fellowship with other people. This freedom is modeled for us in the Last Supper that the disciples ate with Jesus Christ. You can see it in the artwork that's been depicted. All those friends leaning leaning on each other, enjoying a meal together. The freedom to come to God through Jesus is proclaimed in the communion symbolism. We are welcomed. We are free to come and eat at the same table as the Lord of the universe. If you take a look at the things we use, I know this is a small representation, but it's bread, it's, it's wine, it's juice. These are things that are the, at the celebration tables of every culture around the world. And they've become the emblems of our freedom. They are, staple, they, are, they are representatives of a body that was broken. They remind us of blood that was shed, and it's not ours. It wasn't yours. It wasn't mine. It, was, it belonged to Jesus. He was the one that suffered for us. He's the one who died in our place. 
He's the one that invites us to this community. And to participate in this community, it requires us first to open up our hearts and let them be examined. The scriptures say, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail that test? So we come to communion as the right way, I think, to to finish our time in Psalm 139. If you have these things with you, you should grab them now. The scriptures tell us that a person ought to examine himself before he eats the bread and drinks of the cup. And I've put some questions on the screen to help you think about it. I want you to spend some of our time, and I know it might be difficult for you at home, but just spend a few minutes. Don't just eat this mindlessly. Don't, Don't let your brain go to sleep right now. Use this gift that God's given you, this freedom to think, this freedom to compare your your heart for love and hate, this freedom to to look at God and invite him to search you, to open your heart, and prepare your heart for this moment. Don't take this if, if this is not for you. Don't take this just because I'm telling you to do it. Take it if it's true of you. Here's some questions to think about as you prepare. Do I think deeply about God? Are God's thoughts precious to me? Do I hate what he hates and love what he loves? Is my heart open to the Lord? So just let those thoughts go through your mind for a minute. Maybe you're praying silently. The Lord Jesus invites you to remember and proclaim his sacrifice for you. For believers, this is our freedom For everyone else, it's an invitation to come and be free by trusting in Jesus. So if you have this testimony, you're free. And if you haven't done it yet, I'd invite you to eat the bread and drink the cup with me now. that's your testimony, you're free. But if it's not your testimony, we hope that you would talk to us about it. We would hope you would talk to us about what's holding you back from the freedom that Christ offers. Let me pray for you. Father, I want to thank you. Thank you for this table that we join you in. Thank you for the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for our sins. It's uncomfortable to talk about it. But God, It's what changes your attitude towards us as sinners who engage in the things that you hate, that you stand apart from, and puts it towards love. And before we were even reconciled to you, you loved us. So God, we thank you. Thank you that we can be free before you, and we pray that we would use that freedom to honor you. God, I pray for each person here that you would encourage them through the words of, one, of Psalm 139. You would bless them, open their eyes to see your goodness in their life. And Lord, for anybody who is watching and doesn't know you, I pray they would come to you. Lead them by the power of your spirit to trust you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.